This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 10th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm very excited to be joined on this week's episode by the legendary documentary filmmaker Michael Moore, whose latest movie, Where to Invade Next, is coming out soon and already stirring up plenty of conversation. That's nothing new for Michael Moore, who has been making docs on controversial hot-button topics since... Really, 1989, when he came out with Roger and Me, that was followed by Bowling for Columbine, which brought him an Oscar, Fahrenheit 9-11, which became and remains the highest-grossing documentary of all time, Sicko, which brought him a second Oscar nomination, Capitalism, A Love Story, which was his one prior film during the Obama administration, and now this one, a film about how America stacks up with the rest of the world in a lot of different social areas. But before we get to that, let's recap the big news of the past week, a lot of which centers around the AFI Fest, which got underway Thursday night with the world premiere of By the Sea, Angelina Jolie's film, co-starring her and her husband Brad Pitt. It's sort of a European art film uh, in style, and that is not something that necessarily translates into a popular movie in this country or with the Academy. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where critics fall on it, but it's going to be a tough sell for the Oscars. Um, nevertheless, always exciting to see Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie out on the red carpet and at a film festival. Plenty of other activity is happening at the AFI Fest, including an indie contenders panel that I moderated with seven top filmmakers who have made substantial contributions to the world of independent film in 2015. The video of that will be posting on my blog, thr.com slash the race later this week, as will video from the recent Savannah Film Festival, where I moderated a panel with a group of documentary filmmakers who are in the running for the Oscar in that category. Meanwhile, other awards campaigning events are building up to a fever pitch in the run-up to this weekend's Governor's Awards. It's a year without a clear frontrunner in almost any category, which means everybody feels they still have a shot at landing some major recognition and are not going to leave anything on the table in trying to get it. This includes everything from a party at Adam Levine's house for his friend Jason Siegel of The End of the Tour, who appeared on this podcast recently, to a party for Brett Morgan and his film Cobain Montage of Heck, which took place at the home of Robert Evans. Suffice it to say, plenty of Academy members and, yes, journalists are packing on a few extra pounds in advance of Thanksgiving, not waiting for Thanksgiving to do that. But what it's always about, now and always is the work itself, and no documentary filmmaker, perhaps in history, has produced more high-profile or debated work 
than Michael Moore. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Well, thank you so much again for coming in and doing this. Well, thanks for uh, having me, Scott. Absolutely. Uh, It was a real treat to see uh, Word Invade Next in Toronto at that first screening because nobody had any idea what we were in for. You did a very good job of keeping a a lid on what it was about or that it even existed and yeah no, no easy task during the era of social media i was gonna say and, like i can't move oh without my god i, I can't and <laughs> Instagrammed uh somewhere. right and, and you're a recognizable guy so i don't yeah, know how I, you did it i can't yes we we sort of we, we were when we were shooting the film we're like okay there's no way to disguise me <laughs> or hide <laughs> right. me uh so we just kind of threw caution to the wind and hoped for the best and um and it worked yeah. um partly because we were filming in other countries and partly because, and this is a sad commentary on the state of our media, is that um, the big news organizations and the networks don't have the foreign bureaus that they used to have. So unless we were in London, which we weren't, Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, Tokyo, which we weren't, um, you know, some of these places only have two, three, four foreign bureaus. Yeah. I literally could skate across <laughs> the world filming, right. and no American press would necessarily see me. Yeah. And and I and and some I mean the local press would see me shooting my movie, but if, if <laughs> it was like the top story on the Slovenian new, <laughs> newscast, but if let's say that there was an American reporter there from uh, from Cox Newspapers mm-hmm. or whatever, who just happened to be in Slovenia that day yeah. covering the refugee crisis. He turns on the news, and there's Michael Moore at the top of the news, but it's all in Slovenian. Right. So he's, like, trying to record it. <laughs> and then he calls back the Cox Newspapers in, in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, I, need to, I need to hire a Slovenian translator for uh, $10 an hour. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Michael Moore's doing something yeah. here. I can't figure it out. <laughs> no. So it's like, it's it's uh, it, the sad, I mean, we were laughing about it, but it was kind of sad to yeah. think about that that we could actually make this movie right. out in the open right. and as long as we were in countries that Americans no longer had any correspondence in which right. is just about every country <laughs> we were cool well i'm going to obviously most of our conversation is going to be about that film but i hope we can go back cuz i think people should be refreshed about uh, some history uh, that's important and just to begin with, did you go to the movies a lot as a kid? How did you get into this stuff? What was your... Oh, yeah. I, I went to the movies all the time. We had a, a movie theater in our neighborhood called The Midway. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was called The Midway because it was the, the, it was midway between Flint and Lapeer, mm-hmm. Michigan. And uh, But th- that was back in the day when I was a child. They uh, the, the, the movies uh, changed uh, twice a week. So you had the, the movie that opened Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, mm-hmm. and then there was a movie Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. So um, this was right in my neighborhood. I could walk to it, and uh, my parents, of course, took me to the movies, and, and movies were a big thing. My grandfather was, uh, was a huge moviegoer, um, and he would, he would easily go two or three times a week. Wow. And, um, and, you know, would take his kids or the grandkids or whatever. So going to the movies was uh, next to going to mass every day. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you ever get in Flint, Michigan, docs? Uh, yes, actually. Back uh, again, uh, I remember Hearts and Minds, uh-huh. the, the documentary that won the Oscar back in the mid-70s, yeah. played in the Flint Cinema, which is one of the largest screens uh, in town. And um, and so yes, occasionally um, I saw the Atomic Cafe uh, there, uh, and this is a this is again this is not a college town. This is an industrial yeah. town, 
But um, uh, most of the Bergman, Igmar Bergman films wow. uh, also uh, uh, would play uh, uh, in, in Flint. All, all of his films in the, I would say, from the late 60s in, into the 80s, uh, early 80s, wow. uh, you, could, you could see in a place like Flint, Michigan. Isn't yeah. that something? It's really amazing. You, can, you, you literally have to live in New York or L.A., yeah, to see to, some of yeah. these foreign films now. Totally true. And and I guess uh, for you, where before we get into your interest in becoming a filmmaker yourself, where does your interest and in, in knowledge – well, your interest in first first and foremost, where does the – what's the root of the interest in politics and in – and what the root of your sense of humor? Because those mm. are two central things in all well, of your movies. <clears throat> well, first of all, the politics, you know um, – um, I've read, you know, people call me an activist or an activist filmmaker mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and the word activist to me is a redundant term because I'm a citizen in a democracy. Mm-hmm. If you're a citizen in a democracy, that implies you're an activist. We're all activists. We all have to be active in the democracy. If we cease to be active, it's no longer a democracy. Right. Right. So it's to me a redundant uh, term. The, the My political upbringing... Um, my mom was a well-read person. She loved. Uh, she was a secretary. Um, uh, she had a two-year community college degree, um, but she taught us kids to read before we went to kindergarten. So by the time we were in kindergarten, we were reading books—not wow. picture books, but wow. books, books—and wow. I think that was a huge help, just to, because she thought it was important to be aware. She had also by the time of kindergarten, she had us reading the as much as we could of the daily newspaper. Wow. You know, just uh, it was it was just an important thing in our in our home. Um, so that was probably the earliest thing. And then and we had a cousin, uh, our cousin Patricia, who lived in New York City, and her dad worked for Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic Party there back in the uh, 30s and mm-hmm. 40s. And he became a state assemblyman. Oh. And so she would come to to Michigan every uh, summer because my mom she was the daughter of my mom's mm-hmm. sister. And she would bring all this news about what was going on in the world. Yeah. And um, and they were big. You know, when Kennedy became president, we were all Catholic. That was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had us all memorize Kennedy's inaugural address. Wow. I mean, it was – so we were all – and then when we came to New York, you know, we would come there and it would, it would be a great experience as a child yeah. to be exposed to this. So I think that a lot of it came from that. But there wasn't – my parents were not political people. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I think it was just – it wasn't so much politics as it was of just knowing right from wrong, using common sense, and being fair uh, to people. Um, my parents didn't like um, uh, seeing people being treated yeah. poorly or differently, and I think that was probably in, instilled in us. How about the humor element? Was there somebody in your family that you know that that gave you the sense of humor that you have? Well, did I mention that we were Irish Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think like, that just kind of goes without goes saying with, yeah. that that uh, and especially and we weren't that many generations removed from the Irish that, that came uh, to this country. But I, I think that you, I mean, the, I mean, many Irish we have a dark sense of humor, and so humor is often used as a way to alleviate the pain and the suffering of yeah. what's going on or, or the world's condition. And, and so that was just, that was a natural part of, I, my grandparents were, were funny. My dad was funny. My uncles were funny. They were all, they were all kind of, uh, funny and sometimes in a, in a, in a dark sort of way. And as I, as I got older, I could see that, that being Irish, um, 
that that to to sort of deal with your anger or your pain or whatever I, you could drink yeah. <laughs> yeah. or you could go into that place where your sense of humor exists right there are some who do both right, right, um, right. But, but i, but I uh i chose the route of of i guess of of just letting my humor uh uh take over sure. and so it's it's just it it didn't come from anywhere i think other than the fact that it's just in whatever the irish dna is sure now, where along, how along the line did did your um, your own pursuit of becoming a filmmaker begin? Because again, mm. you're in you're you're far removed from Hollywood or New York, where a lot of that tends to um, happen. You're right. in the middle of the country. Right. You're uh, as far as I know, no real connection to the business. None. Um, Zero. Financing wouldn't have been easy. <laughs> no. So where how did this had this all get factory started? workers? Yeah. Um, how did it start? Well, because I always went to the movies as soon as I got my driver's license when I was 16 and because I loved the movies, the films that I couldn't see in Flint, I got in the car and I drove to Ann Arbor or Detroit. Mm-hmm. And and then and I think between the ages of 16 and 19, saw every Kurosawa, um, Truffaut, Bergman, Fellini uh, film mm-hmm. um, that existed. You know, went to, went to see a lot of indie films, documentaries. And that was sort of my film school. I went for a year and a half to the University of Michigan Flint branch, mm-hmm. not the one in Ann Arbor, but the <laughs> one building they had in Flint. And there was a film, <clears throat> a film 101 class there. And, and I, I, I took it basically because they said, well, all we're going to do is watch movies. So that sounded like a, a nice class. <laughs> right. And But the professor was so good. And we would watch uh, Metropolis uh, or M or uh, Dr. Strangelove or Blow Up. And um, and then the the discussion that he would lead was incredible. And and I, I, I there was a one hundred and two, and I took that the next semester, and it really it really got me going. And then around that same year, this would be like probably seventy one, mm-hmm. seventy two. Clockwork Orange came out, and I was so blown away by that film. Um, and I, I think probably starting around then, I started thinking, boy, this would be a great thing to do yeah. to make something like this. To release whatever you know madness is in my brain <laughs> and put it on film, right. and um, uh, but but what I did do as a young adult when I dropped out of college was I started my own alternative newspaper called the Flint Voice, mm-hmm. and I did that for ten years and I continued to go to the movies a lot, and about halfway through that I decided to open up my own little theater. Uh, I rented a, a, a screen. Um, it was actually the, the live theater that was attached to the college. And every Friday and Saturday night, I would program what essentially was an art house. Mm. And I would bring films to, to Flint that maybe wouldn't get there. Um, so, and I'd show them twice on Friday and twice on Saturday, and I'd watch all four screenings. <laughs> so it was my film school, yeah. basically. Yeah. I kind of set up my own film school. And it wasn't until um, I got a call from um, Kevin Rafferty and uh, Jim Ridgway. Uh, Kevin Rafferty had made The Atomic Cafe was a documentary filmmaker and they wanted to come to the Flint area where there was a resurgence of the ultra right wing that essentially was the Klan, the neo-Nazis and whatever, when the layoffs started in the late seventies and early eighties. And they wanted to do a a documentary about this because I had a newspaper there. They were like, can you fill us in? Can you help us out? Mm -hmm. I said, sure. And I did research for them, did it all for free. And, uh, I went on the shoot with them to this big clan rally and they were they were afraid to be on camera themselves to ask questions of the clan and I said well I don't I don't, I'm not afraid of them I'll, <laughs> I'll 
So it was my first time ever on camera. Wow. Asking these um, uh, clan people, just kind of just whatever question popped in my head. Like there was a, there was a there was a woman dressed in a Nazi uniform, and she was quite beautiful, long blonde hair and um, a, a beautiful tan. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, you know, seriously, just you know, between you and me, what's the deal here? I mean, you look like you should be in a copper tone commercial. I mean, what is, why are you here at a Nazi rally? So was that they liked that, and then yeah. and, and, uh, they made this documentary called Blood in the Face. Hmm. A year later, I got laid off from my job, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to make a movie. I want to make a movie on what's happened to Flint, and hmm. the GM was closing down factories. Called up Kevin in New York. And I said, uh, "What? Uh, I, I want to make a movie. Can you show me how the camera works or wow. whatever?" And he and he said, "Yeah, you did all that for us for free. I'll come back to Flint for a week, and I'll I'll teach you how to use the camera and the nagra for the sound." Yeah. And, and he did. That's he shot amazing. the first like sixty rolls of film. Incredible. And people, I don't think they necessarily realize that. Roger and Me was was your first film. Yeah, my first film. I knew nothing about how to make a movie. I I generally didn't like most documentaries. Uh, uh, you know, when, when you were in school, you, you know, you watch these things, these documentaries. They were kind of boring. National Film Board of Canada, you know, <laughs> Nature. Uh, right, right. Here's the beaver. Here's the moose. Um, so I I knew right away that I kind of wanted to make the anti-documentary. Right. And that, and that, I wanted to just do something different with the form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, after it took about two and a half years to shoot, and then Kevin showed me how to use the the Steenbeck to edit film on. Wow! And so I got together with a couple of uh, uh, young people who were like assistant editors, mm-hmm. who were my editors, and um, and the three of us uh, uh, made the film. A uh, funny story. Yeah. I. I um, we were in Washington, D.C., cutting Roger and me. It's January of 1989, and it's inauguration day for the first Bush, <laughs> Daddy Bush. And I said to the editor, say, I've never seen an inauguration. You want to just go over there? And Yeah, so we shut down the editor room. We walked over to the mall, and we got pretty close. And there, there were big screens. It wasn't like Obama's inauguration, right. but there, you know. And up on the screen, I said, oh, my God, there's Kevin. Like Kevin Rafferty, yeah. the, the guy who oh my taught me. He's up there on the stage. Is that him? No, that's not him. Yes, that no, that's him. <laughs> what would he be doing up there? And I said, he's probably making, he got hired to yeah. make a documentary of the day or something or whatever. So a couple of days later, I finally got him on the phone. I said, Kevin, is, I could have swore, I was at the inauguration. I could have sworn you were on the stage. Was that you? And there's like a pause. And he goes, yeah, that was me. I goes, wow. It's like, well, what was, what was going on there? You know, were you making a documentary of it? Another pause, takes a drag off his cigarette. He goes, no, uh, <laughs> my um, my uncle is the president of the United States. <laughs> what? So you were, you were in uh, pretty close with the, well, a couple degrees from the Bushes. A couple? His One mom, degree. <laughs> his mom and Barbara Bush are sisters. Oh, my God. I said, you never told me this. We, oh you, I God. came and helped you with your film. Yeah. You've worked with me with my film. You've taught me all this. You've never <laughs> mentioned that your uncle was then vice president, right. now president. He's, I said, why didn't you say anything? He goes, because of the way you're reacting right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. I said, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, no, no. I said, geez, I'm, now I'm worried I said something bad about him or whatever. <laughs> and, and he goes, no, don't worry. I'm on the other side that of the political so fence funny. from the family. So, Well, let me – Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to – No, I that. think it's fantastic. I appreciate it. That's a great story. And now the one thing that's interesting is that Doc 
filmmakers. There have been many great ones, but I think there's only one in history that the average Joe would recognize, and that is you. And that's partly because you have sort of your your iconic look. It's always the hat, um, and your hair has always, I think, been longer. And just there's certain there's a look. The, and, un, the unkempt. The well, hey, whatever. <clears throat> but so I look like I'm from the Midwest. Everybody, you know, if you were to come to Flint with me, yeah. You know, I mean, this is how we look. But Other I, than that, I'm quite thin for, for the Midwest. <laughs> Other than that, you know, I, you would. <laughs> no, but it's awesome. I guess I wondered because was it just was, you know, with you, it became iconic, I think, pretty much right after Roger and me, right? This was the, this was you. Did you, was it ever cultivated or it's just, this is the way. Oh my you, God, no. If yeah. I could, if I knew any of this was going to happen, if I knew that Roger and me was going to take off, first of all. Weight Watchers is in every town. I would have, I would have like if like a if like a, a fairy godmother had shown right. up and said, "In six months, you will be on David Letterman." <laughs> I'd have six months to get it together. That is so to get funny. it. I mean, the fact that it just kind of exploded in Telluride. Right. I'm there. I'm still making ninety eight dollars a week from unemployment. You know, because I'm I'm laid off while you're in Telluride. While I'm in Telluride, uh, we're selling T shirts on the on the corner to get, to pay for our plane tickets I mean, tell you right paid for my ticket but not my yeah, crew right right to get uh, to get out there and back we're selling t-shirts on the street corner and tell you right uh no if i mean and at that point it was kind of like oh well i guess so you know i'm people like who i am yeah <laughs> i think yeah so there's no reason to change and i'll just live my life and be happy and that's great no that i mean that. i just had to ask because it is like you know there's chaplin with his hat there's oh, there's michael yeah. Moore with his hat there's no, only no, a few i read people. that i read somebody wrote that in um film comment i think this this after toronto seeing this film yeah that the the little tramp and the sort of you know and i get i get that in terms of i understand that the point about the look but i think there's also Something I don't know if it's iconic, but but clearly I set out to do something that totally uh, upended the way a documentary could or should be made. Yes, and what it could be about. Right, and and um, using humor. Right, you know, documentaries before this were pretty humorless, and 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 just and going by your own box office report, somebody pointed this out to me a couple of years mm-hmm. ago that before. Roger and me, there were like seven or eight documentaries that had grossed more than a million dollars in the box office in the history of right. film. Seven or eight. Now your your lowest is what fourteen something like that. You've never yeah. gone lower than that. Well, no, I didn't mean about myself. What I was going to say was yeah. is that there's been I think 129 yeah. documentaries yeah. since Roger right. and me that have grossed more than a million dollars. Well, it's incredible. So right? it's like. It's like the public liked this. People saw that, right. and then others started thinking in different ways. Not not copying what I do, but right. just do their own. That they were. I think people who wanted to make a documentary film, documentary film, were somehow liberated to just make the film they wanted to make. If you wanted to make winged migration right. and just fly up there with the birds, right. uh, and that you know beautiful film, uh, you know other uh, Morgan made uh, uh, Supersize Me. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole gamut now of docu- documentary films. Well, one of the things that I think you were a part of was the beginning of this change of the idea of what a documentary, as you're saying, what it what it had to be. There was, it's you know, for for far too long, I think it was talking heads, archival footage, cut it together. You've got, and that's maybe why some people grew up with the notion that documentaries are boring or whatever. It was like a lecture, but since uh, since that it was medicine, that it was medicine, exactly, yeah. and. And then what has been interesting, you know, I, I sometimes look at it through the prism of the Oscars because I write about that a lot of the time. But the Academy 
was very resistant to any of this new stuff. The reenactments of Errol Morris in the Thin Blue Line. The not uh, nominated, not, not, even, not nominated. even nominated. Right, Roger and me, not even nominated not because nominated, supposedly right. they, uh, you know, you because I decided to tell the story out of order, out of order, <laughs> and also that you were in your own <laughs> movie, which is God forbid, shouldn't you, be that. And, and humor. I was funny, right? Yeah. yeah. Then you know you've had animation. God forbid anyone use animation or 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 reenactments or anything. You know, we talk about reenactments, yes. but voice. There were these rules. Now it's totally different, and I just wonder what it's been like. First of all, when you were introduced to the idea that there were these rules that you were being punished for not adhering to, but also how much it's changed since then. Right. I was vilified by the old school. Mm -hmm. I was really, it was like I was the worst thing, and they came after me in a very harsh uh, way. There's the story of the the committee that was watching, you know, that back then there were only seven or ten people were did the nominating for the Oscar documentary and, and uh, that th- th- they turned the projector off 10 minutes into Roger Mead. Unbelievable. They didn't want to watch another frame of it. It was just, it was stunning. It, it had already set the the box office record for a, a traditional And they weren't uh, even documentary. interested enough to... Weren't even interested enough to watch it. And um, But I stuck with it and I think... I think I got to tell you one of the things I'm most proud of, more, more, more so than the um, you know the Oscar or the Palm Door or whatever, is the fact that I was able to kick the door open, yeah. and to get other people in that door to make their documentary films, totally. and that nonfiction it should be as broad as fiction. It, it's you know the, it's, it, nonfiction is just the vehicle we're in, and then you should be able to drive that car where you want to drive it. If you call it nonfiction, the facts have to be correct. They have, you right. have to, if you say something's a fact, it should be a fact. But if it's an opinion. If it's a viewpoint, it's yours, mm-hmm. and the public, the person watching it, can decide whether they agree with you or not. Right. But, um, but, the, but I mean, before Roger and me, documentaries were not shown in shopping malls mm-hmm. or cineplexes. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the first one, right. <clears throat> and I, I give great uh, kudos to Warner Brothers for getting convincing theater chains yeah. to show a documentary in a shopping mall multiplex, um, and from that point on then there's been a whole spate of documentaries that have been able to be shown outside right. of the traditional art house in only the large cities. And now, we now should note that none of, of yours or anyone's has ever done better than Fahrenheit 9-11. The most that I remember that was the biggest event documentary that that I've ever that, that has ever existed. People went in record numbers, sell the, sell the most uh, high, highest grossing of docs ever, and um, you know what? Someone just told me the other day. It's it's also the highest grossing Palm Door winner ever. Wow! More wow. than Apocalypse Now. More than Pulp Fiction. That's incredible. I know. I heard that. And I said, "You've got to be that can't be true." Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, but you know, the, the thing that that, what, what, what connected the dots between Roger and me and that, I think, is that, and let's just, for people's reminder, to remind people, in between there you had a, a few years where you, uh, before you did Bowling for Columbine, it looks like you ventured into narrative directing for, for Canadian Bacon. But uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you in a minute yeah. if that was something you'd ever <clears throat> do again. Mm-hmm. But for in terms of the docs, Bowling for Columbine, Fahrenheit 9-11, Sicko, Capitalism, Love Story, obviously now Where to Invade Next. But 
politics uh, and controversial issues are the thing that all these have in common. And what the byproduct of that was is that I think um, you have half the country that thinks you're the greatest thing ever and half of them that are not big fans. And I wonder for you, was that was adjusting to being a controversial guy or a guy in the middle of the of the fight or the scrum you know what was that like is it it, did it you know i feel it would be jarring probably it was jarring i was surprised i i i thought especially like with roger me who wouldn't be on the side of the auto workers who had lost their jobs i mean it was kind of that simple to me but but i quickly realized that um you know certainly back then it wasn't half and half i mean i would say more than half of the country did not agree with me politically, and I was seen as out there on that left limb, the left mm-hmm. limb on the tree. Yeah, yeah. And that's not the case anymore, though. I mean, I am in the majority. That's why Obama's been elected twice. <laughs> uh, we have gay marriage. We have, I mean, it's a different country now. Yeah. And so I'm in the mainstream. The things that I believed in and have spoken about for 25 plus mm-hmm. years are now accepted. Yeah. And it's just, and it's the way it is. So I, I'm not. I'm not vilified in that sense. I mean, yes, of course, Fox News still goes after me and Rush Limbaugh and all right. that. But that's okay. I mean, that's that's their job. They're supposed to do that because I'm opposed to the harm that they're creating to this planet mm-hmm. and to the people of this country. Um, so that doesn't surprise me uh, in, in the least. Um, but what I, what I learned to do after a couple of movies was to realize that there were two Michael Moores. There's the real me the one you're talking to mm-hmm, right now mm-hmm. and um, the one my friends and family you know, are with every day or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fictional version that's been created by Fox News and the right-wing media. And I, I came to actually enjoy reading things about me that were just completely made up. And uh, because it was just funny. It was just funny. And people say, oh, no, we have to correct this. No, 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 no. Yeah, so I love the game of, of, of how much I'm worth because this drives them crazy because how could I be against capitalism but I make right. all this money? It's like, like people in socialist countries or democratic socialist countries don't earn a paycheck. Right, right, right. right. You know? <laughs> but it's uh, – so um, I, I, we, I remember my buddies and I, we, there was – the first article that came out that said that I was – worth $10 million or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was like so off the mark. <laughs> but but it was kind of like, see, where I'm from, the guys back home in, in Flint, if if they read I made $10 million, they're not like all upset. They're like, yeah, yeah. one of us got out of here and made $10 million. It's like <laughs> I hit the lottery. Fantastic. <clears throat> but so what we did was just to have some fun with it, I said, I said, why don't we see if we can just up the number? <laughs> so so we started planning. I know I shouldn't admit this in public, but we started just kind of planting stories that I was actually worth twenty million. 20. That's great. And then we we saw it we saw it reported like in Breitbart or something. It just fires them up more. It just fired them up more. Yeah. And we, so we kept we kept adding more and more to it. Wow. To where I got it to, I think now if you if you Google this, I'm worth fifty million dollars. Well, I, I, and that's only because we were pranking <laughs> it. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was it, actually I got I tell you the truth the idea the, the idea didn't come from George Clooney but he called me up this is many years yeah, yeah. ago uh, it might be twenty years ago because he was he wanted to do this prank he wanted to get something planted in page six or whatever yeah, yeah. and needed me to go along yeah. with it so I went along with it. I was so surprised how easy it was <laughs> to get something in the gossip columns right. that is completely untrue right right and um, so uh, so now that I've blown the cover of this. Yeah. And that the fifty million isn't isn't that it was it was my doing just because we me and my buddies were having some fun, 
uh, to see how lazy the media is right. because they right. don't do their job. Um, but uh, so now people know. I, I mean, I listen. I do well. Don't yeah, yeah. don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah, get yeah. out the small violins for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, and because and and well, but that, it's a, it's an interesting point. And and I guess the other thing that it, that this topic of you know the fact that each of these movies has has sort of had a uh, an issue that it focused around, centered around. Um, and just again to to briefly kind of recap whether it's it's gun violence or health healthcare or just capitalism in general. But the question is that I have is um, comes back to Fahrenheit 9/11 because you did a pretty uh, bold thing there where you probably were on your way to Oscar number two with that. That was a movie everybody was into and and definitely shook things up. I could, I shouldn't say everybody was into, but I think probably more so well, than enough, this. It was it's seen as sort of the beginning of the end of Bush, even though he right. it, it came out too late to affect the election. Well, that's what I but, want to ask. But you. from that point on. From, from then on, it was downhill. Yeah. It was downhill for Bush, right. and by the two years later, uh, the Democrats took over Congress. Right. And, so, but what you did, and I think people forget this because there are short memories here, but you withdrew the movie from Oscar eligibility so that it could air on TV before the election, correct. hopefully to yes. swing things. It yes. didn't pan out that way. But I do wonder, though, because unfortunately, we as you look when you look around and you see that uh, what a struggle it was. After even after the doc and after a lot of other stuff with healthcare, with gun control, with um, with all this stuff, with George W. Bush being reelected, do you feel that a documentary has the power to actually change things, or or is it go, is it more just planting a seed? I mean, is it must? How frustrating was it when after all this, George W. Bush is being sworn in again? Well, I I. I I wasn't surprised at that because it Americans historically have never um, purposefully changed a president during a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a president die during a war, yeah. Roosevelt, but uh, but uh, uh, Lincoln, Wilson. I mean, if there's a war going on, generally the people I think of any country are loath to to change the leadership during the war. So I wasn't that surprised that that happened. I, I, and I didn't make the film to get him thrown out of office. It was really, I wanted the American people to know what was being done in their name, our name, over there. Mm-hmm. And the, the film had such a powerful impact. I'll give you a, 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 an example. It's sure. a story I'd, I don't think I've ever mentioned. But um, uh, Karl Rove, in the in the re-election of Bush that year, when after we premiered in Cannes, won the Palm d'Or, and then... You know, all kind of hell broke loose with the Republicans. Like, what is this film about? What's and they hired a polling company to do to essentially go to three cities and take people on the opening weekend to it to see what the impact was going to be on the election. And they found out some very disturbing statistics. Disturbing statistic number one is one third of the Republicans who saw Fahrenheit 9/11 said they would recommend it to other people to go see that blew their minds the second thing and this was even more disturbing to them uh, 10% of the women in the focus group who saw the film who said they were Republican Mm -hmm. 10% of them said after seeing the film and because of the film they were either not going to vote for Bush they were going to vote for Kerry or they were not going to vote at all Mm -hmm. in an election that was going to be so close and it was 150,000 votes in Ohio that was the election That's how close it was. Yeah. Um, that uh, they thought this was going to this they thought it was going to turn the election, and then they had to come up with a strategy. And the strategy was this: 
they we can't let people go into the theater. Uh-huh. We must we we can't have a debate about the film after they've seen it. They must not even enter the right. theater because it's going to turn them. And so we have to attack Michael Moore. We have to go after him, and we have to make people feel that they're being un-American, like this un-American. If they go, if they go, and that was their strategy. Uh, it was very. It was a good strategy. Yeah. They did their best. It's still open number one that weekend. Yeah. It's still and it opened number one in every southern state. Really? It opened number one where in towns where Fort Benning, et cetera. You yeah. know, uh, so I think it probably did a lot to tighten yeah. the race. Yeah. But it was also people were watching it in June and July, right. and it wasn't like they had a whole lot of months before the election to think about it. And um, but but it 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 wasn't a fatal blow to the Bush campaign, but it it. it Essentially, was mortally wounded yeah, yeah, yeah. politically yeah. because from that point on, he, he couldn't really govern the way he wanted to. Now, does it bother you though that increasingly, particularly in the decade plus since that film, people forget about having to block them from going to a Michael Moore movie? Now it's like people just whether it's with talk radio or, or their cable news network or whatever, they're not even interested in. They listen to what they believe in. It's increasingly the stats show that you're just you want to have your own views reinforced. So the idea of a Republican or a conservative even going to a Michael Moore movie uh, seems farther fetched than ever before, doesn't it? Yes and no. Um, first of all, there's fewer and fewer conservatives. Again, that's why we have gay marriage. That's why pot is being decriminalized. That's why you know um, we've had two two terms of a president whose middle name is Hussein. <laughs> Okay, so so the country has changed. Uh, I saw the statistic the other day: eighty-one and a half percent, eighty-one and a half percent of the electorate is either female, people of color, or young voters between the ages of eighteen and thirty-five. That's eighty-one and a half percent. Who is Trump? Who are they talking to? They, they they their imaginary voter is some angry white guy. You know, that's not the majority. That's not America anymore. America looks very different, and that has changed things. But in terms of, I think that there are a lot of people who consider themselves conservative, but they have a good heart. They have a conscience. They know right from wrong. Um, they don't like being taxed. I mean, that's basically why they call themselves a conservative. I would love it if they would come to this movie because, and I think in you, and you've seen it, yeah. this is not a film about Democrats and Republicans. I did not make a partisan film. I did not, uh, even in the opening credits, there's a sort of... Um, uh, not a direct, but a sort of an indirect criticism of Bill Clinton, of Obama, of of the Democrats, and um, uh, you know I've made it. I've made it. I was I was saying to the distributor the other day. I said I I really want people. I mean I know the twenty percent over on the far right are lost souls. Right. We're never going to get them. <laughs> but there's a lot of people in the middle, the mushy right. middle, right. and I'd like to hold my hand out to them, and I'd like to say. Um, as I said to the distributor, is there a way that we could work this where I say to them, "Come," I go on Fox News and I say, come see this movie. Seriously. You don't have to agree with me. Mm-hmm. You don't have to walk out of the theater becoming a Democrat. Just be honest after you leave the film and, and admit a couple of things. Number one, that I love this country. Mm-hmm. And number two, that I have a heart, that I care right. about my fellow Americans. And, and, and I said, and what if we offered a money-back guarantee that if you literally – Thought if you think this movie is just awful, mm-hmm. and that it's and that I'm not being true mm-hmm. to myself or to this country or whatever, send me the ticket, send me your stub, 
and I'll I'll reimburse wow. you your ticket. And is that is that something? Well, they're talking about it. That's amazing. They're talking about it because and I, and I even I even said to them and I'll take it out of my pay. Wow. I mean I, I mean yes, we're going to get a number of people that yeah. are going to send their stubs in, but I don't I don't think it's going to put me out on the curb. No. And 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 I want them to know that I care that much. Yeah. I don't want them again. I don't want them to change or to be like me, but just have an open mind. Well, because here's the just from people who who haven't seen it and just hear what it's about or whatever. Here's here's the the argument you're already hearing, and I'd love if you could just sure. respond. And I'm sorry that we're hearing from uh, well, just the resi- people that are resistant, the, re- the, the resistors, idea. and and I'm certainly in stating these, not endorsing them. But let me just say, sure, sure. So first of all. Um, the idea of making a movie that's sort of saying America's inferior to these other countries in numerous numerous different countries, numerous different ways, then premiering it in another country, on an, uh, basically with the movie letting out on the anniversary of 9-11. I've heard that. I've also heard here that if these other countries are so great, why doesn't Michael Moore go relocate to one of them? <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm sure you've got that plenty. Um, and, I've heard that all my life. <laughs> right, all your life, right. And and also, you know, whether it's like Tunisia or Slovenia or whatever, they're saying, yeah, I mean, maybe the college education is great there, but are we not acknowledging the fact that there are a lot of other things that make people not want to, not terribly happy to be in Slovenia or wherever else, Tunisia. Um, and so just, I wanted to put those out there so that you can, you know, Engage however you want with that. All right, let's take them one by one. Yeah. Um, so, yes, this movie, uh, uh, people have said that I'm, I'm saying that America is inferior to these other countries. Yes, that's my love of America is so great. I want to point out that we have fallen behind. We are not number one anymore in much of anything that matters, uh, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, infrastructure. We had a, we had a, after driving around on German roads for a week uh, while making this movie, and we had not hit a single pothole, right. it, we then started a game where we put money in the kitty, and we put like like any time whoever spotted the pothole first, we had like fifty bucks in there, got the fifty dollars. <laughs> Nobody we then we raised it to okay if we find a tire on the side of the road, ripped off tire, the rim and everything, you know, a hundred dollars for that. No, but we never had we never encountered that. Yes, they figured out a different way to live over there. Their students are are smart. Uh, you know, the one student in Finland, he was an exchange student in the U.S., and he said, I'm so glad to get back to Finland because in the U.S., the tests were all multiple choice. In other words, they could only have a test in America if the correct answer is in front of you. In Finland and in Germany and Ireland and other places, you actually have to know the right answer. So, So I don't like hearing that. I mean, it's not that I want to show that we're inferior. I'm, I'm upset as an American. I want us to be as good as them or better, but the, but we're not, and that's the truth. I mean, that is the truth, and that, that when you have a, a longer, you have a chance to live longer in a third-world country, in some of these third-world countries, than you do in the U.S., their life expectancy, we should want to fix that. So that's, you know, that's my answer to that. In terms of premiering it in a foreign country, I mean, at the Toronto Film yes. Festival, oh, do we really think Canada's <laughs> a foreign country now? Seriously. Well, they do have different health care. They, they, yes. Well, they actually, I'm being facetious. Yeah, right. they, they are very foreign. Yes. They look like us. They talk like us. But right. trust me, they have a whole different attitude right. to toward taking care of each other. Uh, but all the all the great films premiere in Toronto, right? Isn't that where we go? It's certainly one I of mean, them. I would ask, the question I would ask is to anybody writing, especially in the film and the Hollywood press, yeah. is... Why don't we have a festival in Los Angeles that is that that is like Toronto, where everybody shouldn't we feel like the place to premiere our movie should be in our movie capital? It's the movie capital of the world. 
Why are we in Toronto? <laughs> what is special about this night? <laughs> we should be asking this question. I agree with that. And what about the, 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 the reflex thing that always has happened, I think, probably since Roger and me? Yeah. Well, if you don't like it, Michael Moore, why don't you get out of here? No, no. It's I'm just because I love the United States so much. Right. I want to fix it and I want to make it better. Right. I, I always, even, even when we got done filming this, we went to a dozen countries. I was so relieved to land at JFK. Yeah. You know, it was it was. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, yes. The we lost a tire on the way back into the city going through Queens, <laughs> but nonetheless, I was really happy to be home. This is my home. I love my home. I want it to be better. Right. That's what that's that's what that's about. And and uh, what was the third thing? I, uh, no, I think you got them. And I mean. And, and the fact that it had been six years, almost the span of the Obama administration since your previous film, should I not take that to mean that you were just content with the way things were going? No, I uh, no, I voted for Obama twice, and I'm very critical of the things that I'm critical about, of what right. I wish that he would have done by now. Right. And that I think a lot of us expected him to do by now. But on, on the other hand... What a what a palate cleanser from George W. Bush. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I'm uh, so no. I think during the, during these six years, I, I wrote a, a, to what to me was my best book. Uh, Here comes trouble. Uh, it's a it's a book of twenty four short stories uh, from my life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of a memoir, but mm-hmm. I wrote them like short stories, yeah. and I'm very proud of that. Um, I I I decided to help uh, revitalize some downtowns in Michigan that are that were dilapidated and. And I, I came up with an idea of restoring the old movie palaces that are closed down. Yeah. And so I started doing that, and I run a couple of theaters, and I run a film festival that I put together. So you in, haven't been hyper in Michigan. You're not, uh, <laughs> no, but also, but also, I've gone through the things that people go through in their life. Uh, my my father died a year and a half ago. Uh, I, I went through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I go through what everybody goes yeah. through. But uh, but no, it was it was it was it was time to make this movie, yeah. and uh, and it's it's one that I and my crew were very very proud of. So if you were to you know just thinking aloud about what some of the issues that I imagine might frustrate you at the moment are, you know, as we're trying to speculate about where the next uh, secret Michael Moore documentary might be about, <laughs> uh, there's you know I've heard you speak out about the you know I think just today about. Um, you know, Tarantino's made the point about the police. You know, the police. There's been some issues, big debate about the role of police in in our society and how they're behaving. Um, you've you've obviously got opinions about that. You've got yeah. Uh, I came out strongly in favor of what of Quentin attending. He attended a rally in New York City to support the families, and he stood there with the families of those who've lost a loved one to police violence. I thought that was an incredible thing to do. I didn't see any other white celebrities there, and in fact, Scott. In the week or two since that happened, and he's been attacked, and the police uh, union wants to boycott his films and all this. Has anybody in this town stood up for Quentin Tarantino? Has anybody gone and Jamie Foxx? That's the only other one that I can think of. That was the only. Yes, I guess I meant anyone white. Well, uh, has any white person in this town, in this industry, stood up for Quentin Tarantino, who is a white guy, stuck his neck out there, and is they're trying to chop it off? And so, and so, a couple days ago, I just said. Well, the hell with that. I'm going to stand up for him. But just as a devil's advocate, uh, the idea that the police are having problems is uh, you know, there's been issues is not in dispute. What is what he, I think what their issue, a lot of people's issue has been with what he said was that apparently I think he called them murders, right? As a as a general isn't it description? Isn't well, it? I, but is it's it one, a, if one thing if the if the if the so-called uh, 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 perpetrator or in this case actually victim mm-hmm. was armed. Uh, that's one thing, because uh, the police are trying to act in self-defense. 
But if the police know they have an unarmed person and and they're in the process of killing someone and this someone is shouting, I think a total of 13 times, I can't breathe until he can't say it the 14th time because he literally can't breathe. Uh, that If I did that to you right now, <laughs> I think I would be called a murderer. Yeah. I don't think I have the right to do that. And just because you're wearing a uniform or a badge, listen, the, most cops, nearly all cops, I think are great. Yeah. They put their lives on the line to protect us and, and make sure that we're safe. I wouldn't want the job. They're not paid enough. I think, you know, police are... are and the police... And the, the some of them will say, well, it's just a few bad apples. Well, in the case of New York City, let's say 90% of the police are awesome. Okay? I'll say that. 90% of the police are awesome. If you're making a movie or a TV show, you love to work in New York. I think it's better than L.A. in terms of the cops. The cops are funny. They're friendly. It's it's really easy to, to shoot right. uh, film uh, in uh, in New York. But if 10% of them aren't awesome, if the 10% are the bad apples, there's thirty to 40,000 police officers in New York. That's three to 4,000 cops. That That's a lot of people running around with a badge and a gun that maybe shouldn't have a badge and a gun. And we expect the police to patrol themselves and to police themselves and to make sure that the bad ones are weeded out. Well, it sounds like it could, aside from being a very important issue, it sounds like it could be something that you would be uh, passionate enough to you do mean to think, what about. do i feel about right what i feel impassioned about these days you yeah, mean well, just in sense of like you know oh. what you're you know imagine it what could you see yourself getting impassioned enough to make it your next film about i think the i think the issue probably i feel the the most impassioned about right now is that there should be one charge cord for all devices there, the fact that I've got to carry around three or four charge cords, <laughs> one for the phone, one for the tablet, one for my laptop. Right. What happened to the idea of, I mean, every I'm looking around the room here. Yeah. The lamp over there, his the sound guy's equipment. There is a two-prong, two-hole-in-the-wall plug yeah. for electricity. It's been that way for over 100 years yeah. because big government said, we're going to have one cord and one plug for everything, for shit that's not even invented yet. You know, that, that plug was invented before there was a refrigerator, an air conditioner, you know, uh, computers, and it stayed the same, one plug into the wall. But but for the charging of these devices now, it's before a pain we, in the ass. It's a pain in the ass. They're making a lot of, they're charging you 49 bucks every time they, you got to get a new cord. Right. I think I could get elected to national uh, office on this platform point alone. We'll just come up one, with a, an iPhone uh, battery that lasts more than a few hours that too that i'll throw that in there i will give you if elected <laughs> yeah. i will give you a battery that lasts five well, days <laughs> and a and a and one charge cord whether it's a blackberry an iphone right. a droid you know wh- whatever hasn't been invented yet there's going to be one charge cord that and free hbo for everybody the most widely appealing michael moore uh film yes. yet yes but <laughs> last last few things just very briefly if it's if i may sure. um just interesting decisions that you made. First of all, you're, you've elected to release Where to Invade Next through a company that didn't exist a few prior to this. Uh, and it's uh, it's not for lack of interest from others. Um, I wonder, though, when you were considering your options, when you, when you look at the – so many docs now come out through streaming services like Netflix or Amazon. So many come out – just different ways there, that are out there now. How did you what, – what led you to – kind of go in the way that you did with this, with a company that, that is new. They're brand new. They don't even have a name yet. 
Um, and we're six weeks away from the New York, L.A. release of the movie. <laughs> you got to get on them for that. Uh, I am on them. Yeah. Listen, you know, it is a very risky decision on my part because you're right. We had wonderful offers from studios, from well-known distributors, um, from people I've worked with before. Um, this, this was a real roll of the dice, and it's my belief in them and the individuals, uh, the, the, uh, Tom Quinn and, and Jason Janago, mm-hmm. who ran Radius at the Weinstein Company. Uh, Tom, I think, worked at Samuel Goldwyn. These guys worked at Magnolia. And um, they have an incredible track record. And, uh, and I'm going to be their first film. And so they are, they are betting their ranch on this. Yeah. And, and I'm counting on them. And we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, it's this, it's the old thing of, of high risk, high reward. I know the risk that's involved in this. Yeah. If it works, um, it's because of their belief that people should see this in a movie theater. This is going to get distributed theatrically in and a way. That's very important to you. It's as well. very important. I made this for you to sit in a room with a hundred other people in the dark and see it on a big screen. Mm-hmm. It, you need to have the collective experience of, of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it will have more impact on people, and I believe people will be more committed uh, to whatever um, when they leave the theater. But I also re- remember, I, although I, these are films that deal with politics or whatever, I am first and foremost a filmmaker. I am not a political uh, uh, um, politician or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I am trying to make a great film. Yeah. And, I've, and I think I've made a great film, and I've made it for you to see on a Friday and Saturday night. That you can take your date, take your spouse eat goobers, eat popcorn. <laughs> I've made that kind of movie. Right. I have not made medicine. Right. You're not going to go there going, oh, <laughs> why did I bring her to this? <laughs> well, and part of this is also why I think you're pissed about this barrier for entry that the MPAA has has kind of put up right. rating this R, right? Yes. They've rated it R. If I've, I've made this film for young people. You know, this is a film teenagers and, uh, should see. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to appeal it. They've they've come up with awful. Re- I mean, they gave it an R rating for violence. The violence is the New York City police killing a man. <laughs> That's on the evening news. Why is it if it's six thirty, it's okay on TV, but I can't have it in a movie? It's got to be R rated. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hoping that they're going to come to their senses on yeah. this. Well, that'll be interesting to see, and it does make a big difference for who can get into. Absolutely, the movie. absolutely. And if they and if they if we get stuck with the R, then I do what I always do, encouraging teenagers to, by any means necessary, get yourself <laughs> into the movie theater. Well, uh, last two things. First of all, um, you, not that long ago, I think 2010 to 2013, maybe you were on the Board of Governors of the Academy. Yes. Representing the documentary branch. You've been a great champion of documentary filmmakers, Traverse City Film Festival, and all kinds of things. Uh, even just, a, as we were saying earlier, a tweet from you can change a film's fate, which is really um, terrific. But one of the things that you faced when you were on the board was this idea of how do we involve more people in the process of picking winners of documentaries? Because it, it was basically limited, as I understand it, to people that could prove they'd seen all five. And meanwhile, that's not a standard that's applied to other categories. Correct, right. So the criticism of that was that by by opening up the process that way and not having any accountability, you're going to have a few people that – or a lot of people that may just watch the one that they've heard the most about and it kind of advantages populist movies, which – coincidentally or whatever, also would encompass most of, you know, your movies get a lot of attention. They're the center of attention. So for the people that are, you know, naysayers about that policy, they're trying to pin it on on that. Do you feel, though, that it's working? And do you feel as well that uh, that the doc 
uh, evolution has gotten to the point where a doc could be nominated for Best Picture. I feel, and I worked very hard for these changes, and, and yes, they grew out of the fact that Hoop Dreams was not nominated. Errol Morris had never been nominated. Uh, um, you know, Roger Mee had not been nominated. Um, I was not allowed even to be a member of the Academy until 13 years after Roger and me. Um, and, and when I finally was in the branch, and the branch had maybe 130 people in it, uh, there were no African Americans. Uh, it was, it was mostly men. Um, and, and so I just made a commitment to change this. And, and the philosophy of the Academy is to do exactly that. We need a more diverse Academy. We need a more diverse industry. And so I, uh, I asked the board, uh, if we could do some things and, and the general board, the over of all the other branches agreed the documentary branch, we need more members. There's 6,000 Academy members and 5,900 and whatever, make fiction films and a hundred and some make nonfiction. It doesn't seem like a, I'm not asking for half the 6,000 to be nonfiction, but geez, come on, 5,900 to 100. So, so they've a lot, we now have almost 300 members. Uh, We have, uh, we, we have um, uh, a number of African-American filmmakers. I think our branch, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I wouldn't be surprised now if it's 30 to 40% female, which is one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, and, and so, it, so I think that there, these were all good things yeah. to um, to have happen. I just think I think that I I look the, uh, but this larger idea of now the the, the it's this, the, I wanted to bring democracy right. to our branch, and and to the larger academy, and to have all six thousand be able to vote on the documentaries, and the academy agreed to send all six thousand docu- members all five nominees of the documentaries. That's an incredible gift. Yeah. So many more Academy members now are watching documentaries yeah. than before. It was just a committee of seven, and then, and like you said, you had to be five. You had to prove you've seen all five. So the Oscar for documentary would go to maybe only 200 people saw the movie mm-hmm. out of the 6,000. Now it's it's much broader. It's right. always better to have more people getting to have a say. Right. You're going to have a better decision as a result of that. Well, And, and as, a, as a final question that relates, that relates to that, um, as you survey the scene now, just over 25 years since your first film, uh, and see how much the the documentary community has changed, the the you know all these barriers for entry that have now kind of gone away. You know, light, cheap, lightweight equipment. Anybody can make a documentary, uh, Kickstarter and things. Anyone can raise fi- financing if they have a good idea. Uh, streaming. Anybody can get their movie out there. You know, if if, if it's good enough. Um, all this stuff. How how do you feel? Because you certainly were in on the ground level, and and the quality of the films just it seemed to be. It seems like it's deeper than ever, and and that comes back to you know this idea that perhaps we'll we'll see the day when a when a doc even gets nominated for best picture. But what's your the state of the documentary world today? Um, based on the as somebody who's seen it evolve over twenty five years, how do you feel? I feel very good about it. I feel that the fact that that documentary filmmaking can be in the hands of anyone, regardless of their socioeconomic status, that's always a good thing in a free society where all voices have a chance to be heard. Um, And yes, that means that there's a lot of documentaries being made that shouldn't be made. (laughs) I understand Sundance gets like 8,000 submissions or whatever, and it must be insanity over there. But you're right, though, because more people have a chance to do this, 
there are there are more documentaries that are great. It is deeper, richer. It has there's more substance. There's more variety. It's all been for the good. And again, I, this is one of the things I feel very strongly about. And and what I hope will be part of my own legacy is that I've helped others who didn't have a voice to be able to make their films, to get their films seen. Uh, we were talking out in the hall about how you mentioned that these uh, I've been hosting screenings yes. for other documentaries yes. that are actually my competition. Yeah, yeah. But I don't look at it that way yeah. because I each week now I've been I've been hosting a screening to get people to see these documentaries that are up for the Oscars because they're great films. Yeah. I want them there at the show at on the stage. I want them. You know, it's it's good for the world. It's good for filmmaking uh, if if they succeed. And um, and I want that to happen, and I want to be part of that, and I want to do whatever I can to uh, to make that happen. So, well, you know, it's fantastic, and I I really really appreciate you coming in. I think you're, there are few people more interesting than than you and what you do, and just uh, means a lot that you take the time. So, thank you. No, thank you, and and uh, thanks for your support of documentary filmmakers and the Hollywood Reporter covering. You know, indie film the way you do, um, that it's not just about the big blockbusters. And it's important to, especially to indie filmmakers who don't have access uh, to a lot of media and don't have high priced publicists or whatever, <laughs> uh, that you actually cover the whole gamut of, uh, of filmmaking. And so I thank you. Absolutely appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.